Today, we are in the most controversial chapter in the entire Bible. Also, we're going to talk about the millennium. Which view are you? Plus, we delve into a hot-button political social issue, and we discuss if it's the end of Christianity in the West as we know it. Are we, in fact... This is The Deep End. This is the Bible. And this is the Deep End Podcast, where we talk about the Bible in modern day language. Thank you for joining us. This is the Deep End. Okay, it's Wednesday, it's noon, and you are here, and I'm so glad, or if you're listening after Wednesday at noon, I'm glad about that too. My name is Tim, I'm the host of the Deep End Podcast and the pastor of Water Church in North Attleboro, Massachusetts. Wherever you're watching from, let us know in the comments below, whether you're on YouTube.com or Facebook.com, watching us live on Facebook or on YouTube. Either way, we don't care how you're watching or how you're listening, just that you are listening and watching or watching. And we are at Season 2, Episode 32, and I just want to remind you, Facebook and YouTube watchers, like and subscribe. You can just give us a thumbs up uh, on the video and also subscribe. Uh, like the page on Facebook, subscribe to the YouTube channel, the TheDeepEnd.tv uh, is where you can go to check out all of our social media pages, Instagram.com, Facebook.com, YouTube.com, and they're all slash the Deep End TV. Make sure you like and subscribe. Your likes and subscribes help promote the Deep End podcast. Also, could you do me a favor, Deep Enders? Deep Enders. I just came up with that because that's what I'm going to choose to call you. Are you a Deep Ender? And can I depend on you Deep Enders? How about that? Little plan words. <laughs> anyway, can you Deep Enders out there do me a favor? Write a review and either at or both the Deep End Facebook page or through the Apple Podcast app. Could you do this for me. Uh, do this for the Deep End Podcast. The more reviews and the more uh, stars that you give us, the better our chances are of getting found and searched in uh, organic search results uh, on Google. We would l really appreciate that only if you're interested in leaving a positive review, okay? That's the rule. So it's got to be a positive review. Leave us a review. Help us out. Promote the Deep End. Thanks for joining us. Let's get into some news. Uh, we always like to talk about the news here on the Deep End Podcast because... It's important that as Christians, we are students not just of the scriptures, but students of the local papers and the national papers because we live in the real world and we are supposed to be salt and light. And that brings me to an uh, article. This is out of NPR.com, uh, NPR.com, National Public Radio. And the title of the article is an interesting article. It's a social hot-button issue that you probably didn't even realize is a social hot-button issue. Should men be alone with women who are not their wives? This has become a social hot-button issue. Uh, I think two years ago, when Mike Pence refused to be alone with a woman, citing the Billy Graham rule, quote-unquote Billy Graham rule, uh, the rule that Billy Graham instituted for himself to never be alone with a woman who was not his wife for fear of impropriety or uh, his own temptation. So according to legend, I think legend, well, not legend, actually, I think according to uh, biographies, even uh, hotel rooms were pre-checked before Billy Graham would walk into them elevators pre-checked before he'd walk into them because he didn't want to jeopardize his, his very profoundly popular and important worldwide ministry. Well, this Billy Graham rule has come to the political fray, and it has come to us, once again, not just through Mike Pence, vice president of the United States, who was excoriated, by the way, for this view, but now Mississippi gubernatorial candidate, uh, 
His name is Robert Foster. He is a uh, currently a Mississippi representative, and he is running for governor of Mississippi. NPR writes, Mississippi gubernatorial candidates condition for female reporter, colon, bring a man. Now, evidently, his rule is he, that he doesn't want this reporter from, uh, I forget, oh, the, uh, the, the, the newspaper Mississippi Today. Her name is Larison Campbell. He doesn't want her uh, being alone with him for a 15-hour day-long interview uh, scheduled appointment and he said look i don't mind doing the interview with you all day and you can follow me along but you got to bring a male colleague with you well this really ruffled the feathers over there at mississippi today and they basically uh declined the opportunity to do the interview at all and the article is really something um I want to read some highlights to you just so that you know kind of the background because you'll probably hear about this in national news sources or maybe on your uh, Facebook feed or something like that. So let's just read it here. This is from NPR.com, and it says this. Robert Foster made a profit, promise made a promise to his high school sweetheart before they got married. He would never be alone with another woman he wasn't related to under any circumstances, be it in an office, a farm, or a truck. On Sunday, that meant denying female journalist's request to ride along with him as a campaign be- as he campaigned to become Mississippi's next governor unless she agreed to bring a male colleague along for the trip. Quote, I put my wife and my Christian beliefs above anyone else's feelings or opinions, and I did not want, to be there, I did not want there to be a perception that I was riding with another female and that something promiscuous was going on or anything like that. Foster, a first-term Republican state, senative, state, state representative, said to NPR. The reporter, Larison Campbell, who writes for Mississippi Today, began covering Foster even before he formally announced his gubernatorial aspirations. Uh, initially, Foster's term agreed to the conditions, but as the day approached, his campaign sent, uh, manager sent an email with a caveat saying that Campbell needed to bring a male colleague to accompany her on the 15-hour trip. It was so out of left field, I did not think it was going to be real, Campbell said. After some attempts to appease Foster, Campbell said she, she offered to prominently display her press badge throughout the day to avoid appearing in photographs with the candidate. He insisted that sitting in the front seat of his truck with his not-wife could put his political career in peril. In the end, Mississippi Today decided to pull the plug in the interview and write about why they would not cover Foster's Day on the road. Now, this is where it gets interesting in the article. Here's their view. My editor and I agreed. This is the reporter. My editor and I agreed the request was sexist and an unnecessary use of resources given this reporter's experience covering Mississippi politics, she wrote. Campbell also noted that she had broken several stories regarding Foster's run and interviewed him on numerous occasions in the halls of the Capitol, over the phone, and at events. I guess as long as he's not alone with her, he's fine with this woman interviewing him. It didn't take long for the story to gain national attention. In the days since, Foster has continued to stick to his gun, saying perception is the reality in this world. He maintains that he has been dogged by professional political trackers for the past seven months who are itching to get something incriminating on him. They're looking to try and manipulate anything they can to try to hurt my career and hurt my chances in this campaign. Of course they are. And then it says, when asked if a female colleague of Campbell's would have provided sufficient protective buffer... Uh, Campbell said, the two women in my vehicle that I don't know, that I'm not personally connected to as family, is not any better than one other woman, in my opinion. He added that it is especially bad time for men to be alone with women in light of the Me Too movement. I'm not going to put myself in a position where a female could come back and say that I made advances on her, I tried to assault her, and there's no witness to say that it didn't happen. Foster also disagrees with the news outlet's position that requiring male chaperones for women, reporters or otherwise who intend to be alone with men is sexist. Instead, he believes it is the Christian thing to do, noting the practice known as the Billy Graham rule. 
Campbell called that logic, this is the reporter again, antiquated, trapped in an era in which politics were primarily a male space and women were not perceived as professional equals. You're not going to assume that it's an, uh, that's an, that it's an improper relationship if, when you look at me, you don't see a woman doing her job, you see a woman who is a sex object, she said. And the article goes on and on. She says this. What she finds most unjust about the Billy Graham rule and the men who follow it, she said, is that it puts the onus on the women to make men feel comfortable and explain why they deserve to be there. Rather than wanting to do the work that they really should do to confront things that are uncomfortable, they're asking women to change. They're asking women to accommodate men, end quote. Okay, what's my view? Here's my view. Uh, I don't disparage this guy at all for his... Christian belief that he should not be alone with a woman who's not his wife. I think this is wisdom. I think that in the era of the Me Too movement, this is very wise. Uh, and I think that sometimes these reporters uh, get their wires crossed <laughs> when it comes to reality. The same people who excoriate this man for holding fast to this rule will destroy a man who has even the hint of moral impropriety with women in private a.k.a. Brett Kavanaugh, Supreme Court Justice of the United States. There was no witnesses that could corroborate uh, uh, Blasey Ford's testimony that he raped her, and yet he was brought through the proverbial political mud for something that may or may not have happened, but would never have had a chance to happen if somebody else was along in that room with him to stop him, or at least to say that he did or did not do it. So... This is the problem, by the way, with secularism. And this is why I bring stories like this to the podcast, because we need to talk about the news through the lens of Christian principles. And here's the thing. Secularists are famous for expecting humans to be basically good. This is the big delineation between secularists and Christians. And by Christian, I mean biblical Christians. Secularists make a profound a profoundly dangerous assumption about the human condition. And here's that assumption, that human beings are basically good and that if they have the right societal advancements and advantages, they will always do good and be good and get better. That is a profoundly dangerous assumption. The Bible and Scripture speaks the exact opposite of that stance. The Bible says that people are basically evil. We are We have inherited Adam's sinful nature. Sin meaning I always do what I want to do at the end of the day. Naturally. Me first. This is why you never have to tell a child to disobey. That comes pre-programmed into his DNA from conception. And so it's important that we read the news through the lens of Christian views. And so when we make this assumption, secular, this is why secularism doesn't work, friend. Secularism doesn't work because humans stink. Humans are evil. Humans are fallen. And it doesn't matter what amount of societal advantages a human has, they will still do something awful, a.k.a. Jeffrey Epstein right now, who is um, (laughs) accused of the most egregious evil and was basically handed millions of dollars through whatever means necessary to earn his incredibly lavish lifestyle. And what does he do with his advantages? What does he do with his societal opportunities? He takes advantage of young women. That's what he does. Why? Because human beings are basically evil. More money does not fix it. More education does not fix it. Nothing really fixes it except Jesus. Jesus and punishment for doing wrong, those two things. 
And so the Washington Post weighed in on this, and a, and a, and a reporter named Monica Hess wrote an article in the Washington Post said, which said, quote, the Billy Graham rule doesn't honor your wife, it demeans her and all women. Okay, well, wait a second. The Billy Graham rule does not demean all women because one of the women that you claim it demeans is his wife, whom he made a promise to. So when this article says that this woman, uh, the, the reporter said that his foolish rule asks women to accommodate him or all men for that matter, uh, is therefore sexist because it's asking this a reporter, a woman, to accommodate him, a man. Well, let me ask you a question. Does his promise to his wife before he got married mean anything to you? Does Do you not want a politician who is willing to stick to his word even when his word costs him an interview with a, with a, with a, with a, with a, uh, journalist, a journalistic outlet? Don't we want people like this running for office? Don't we want people who are so firm in their convictions that they will even let it cost them political advancement in the long run? See, it seems to me like sometimes the seculars just don't get it right. On one end, they want unfettered access to these politicians, and then on the other end, they want to expect that these politicians are never in any way going to do anything inappropriate. When all the evidence out there lends to the contrary, and we have... A president right now in office who many people are accusing of improprieties with women in private. And whether or not he did that really is not the issue. The issue is, is that they will excoriate him for supposedly doing it. And then they will excoriate this gentleman who refuses to be alone with a woman for fear of possibly doing it or even being accused of doing it. Again, a.k.a. Brett Kavanaugh. What's my point? My point is not to tell you to vote for or against a certain candidate. My point is to tell you that this is the problem with making the fatal assumption that humans are basically good. They are not. They need help. They are basically evil. And we need restrictions on evil. Two of those great restrictions are the gospel of Jesus Christ, which changes you from the inside out and makes you a new person creates in you a love for good. Secondly is the forces of government which restrain evil through the laws and the punishment structures of that country or community. And I bring all this up because we are in the book of Revelation and we are getting to an important point in the book of Revelation, which is the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. And so, ladies and gentlemen, let's get into it. We're going to go into the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. Okay, so the millennium, ladies and gentlemen, Revelation chapter 20. And you might be interested to know that Revelation chapter 20 is the most contested portion in the book of Revelation. The most contested as if, as if it couldn't get any worse. Yes, it can. You thought those four views were chaotic and crazy. Well, they ain't got nothing on the views of the millennium. So this episode is called The Millennium, Revelation chapter 20. And I want to say, before we get anywhere forward in the millennium, we don't have to agree about everything, okay? We are children of the same father. And so while we might contest and debate about pre post millennial views, amillennial views, we don't have to disagree to the point where we can't talk to each other. In fact, we should learn from each other. 
And, and this goes for almost anything else in the Christian faith, apart from the atoning work of Jesus Christ at the cross and his resurrection and divinity. I think those three things are like non-negotiables. Not, I don't think, I know. They're non-negotiables. The atoning work of Jesus' blood at the cross, his resurrection, and his divinity. Those three things, on those three things, hinge the entire Christian faith. If we, dis- if we disagree about those things, uh, you're not a Christian. Okay, so you've got to believe his blood washes away our sins. He did bodily resurrect on the third day, and he was eternally divine with the Father before uh, his earthly mission, during his earthly mission, and after his earthly mission. Those three things are non-negotiables. But outside of that, we can debate things, such as is the rapture a thing or not, like we've done on this podcast already and especially when it comes to the millennium. So let's enter into the debate, shall we? First off, I want to let you know that more than just the millennium happens in Revelation chapter 20. More than just the the millennium. Four things actually happen. We're going to cover all four. Number one, the millennium, okay? And the millennium is actually not even called the millennium in Scripture. It's not. The word millennium doesn't actually even appear in the Scripture. It doesn't mean that it's not a thing because the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Scripture either. But it, but it is a thing, okay? So the millennium is not actually the name of the period that the scriptures give it. Actually, it's called the binding of Satan, Revelation 21 through 3. So that's the first thing that happens. And then secondly, the reign of the saints, which also is a thousand-year period, and it could also be a name for the millennium, and that's verses 4 to 6. Then there's this battle of Gog and Magog. I mean, if there were biblical names, there you go. Gog and Magog, and that's verses 7 to 10. And then finally... And we will finish up with the white throne judgment. Uh, and that's verses 11 to 15. So let's dig into it. Let's talk about it. And before we get anywhere, we're going to have to talk about the three views of the millennium. Now, if you've been with this podcast any length of time for season two, you know we've been talking about four views of Revelation, four views of Revelation. Now, here's what's interesting. The preterist, the historicist, the futurist, and the spiritualist views of Revelation, they all kind of go into the millennium and come out on the other side completely different. And this is interesting. Like at chapter 20 of Revelation, those four views kind of stop, boom, and then they come out on the other side, and, and some historicists are premillennial, and some are post, and some are amillennial, and some futurists are pre and post, and, uh, and some futurists are pre and post, and uh, so on and so forth. So what I'm just trying to say is Revelation chapter 20, again, one of the most contested chapters in all the Bible, if not the most, when you get to the millennium, it all, all everything's up for grabs. So what we're going to do is we're going to change from four views, we're going to change from four views to three views, and we've got to talk about the three views of the millennium, and that brings me to a special segment. We call it the whiteboard segment. Let's go. The whiteboard. The whiteboard. <laughs> okay, three views of the millennium. Pre, ah, uh, post. So let's talk about pre. Thousand-year period, the text talks about thousand years. It talks about Satan being bound. He no longer deceives the nation. And it also talks about the fact that the saints reign with Christ. So now the question is, when does this happen? So here's what the prefixes mean about the millennium views. Pre means that you believe that Jesus comes back before the millennium, and he comes back with his church, and the earthly church joins them, and then it starts a thousand-year reign where Christ is kind of universal king on earth. And this is what 
we call premillennialism. And then at the end of that thousand years, Satan is released. There is a final battle, Gog and Magog, and then there is a new heavens and a new earth, and voila. Now, that's the only view that has Jesus coming back before the millennium. The other views are amillennial, which basically means no millennium, and post-millennial, which means after the millennium, Jesus comes back. So here's the thing. What do you mean by no millennium if the Bible clearly says there's a thousand-year period? Well, because of the interpretation of the words a thousand years. And what that basically, we'll talk about that in just a moment, what that means to them is that the church age is symbolically referred to as a thousand-year period in amillennium, meaning no, in other words, no literal thousand years, but more of a figurative age in history where Jesus will finally come back and inaugurate the new heavens and the new earth. And then post-millennialism means that the return of Christ happens after. So you say, well, wait a second, what's the difference between amillennial and post-millennial? Well, there's a couple of nuances that make post-millennial different and distinct from amillennial uh, view, views. And so what it is is that post-millennial, I call it the positive millennial view, positive millennial view. What do I mean by that? What post-millennials believe is that there's going to be a probably literal 1,000-year period where the world will be predominantly Christian. Most people will be Christian. In fact, all, some post-millennials believe all, Christ, all people will be Christians for 1,000 years. And what there's, why, why I call that positive is because it's saying that it's that positive about the impact of the gospel. The gospel will change so many people's hearts that eventually this kind of golden age of Christianity will take over planet Earth. Jesus will reign through the church, not physically, literally, but through the church over the earth for a thousand years. And many post-millennialists believe we are either on the verge of that happening or we are somewhere in the beginning of that already happening. And then at the end of that golden age, Jesus will come back again. So there is definitely a, a millennial, according to the post-millennial view, but it happens a thousand years of really positive Christian movement, positive Christian influence, and a global kind of Christianity, and then Jesus comes back. So those are the three views. Now we've got to discuss about how do we read Revelation chapter 20, this very confusing chapter, according to those three views. So let's head back to the desk. We'll do that right now. Okay, three views. Again, premillennial, which means it's yet to happen. So it's not going to happen until Jesus comes back again. The binding of Satan is future. It will take place when Christ returns, thousand years, literal period, Christ reigning. The loosening of Satan will bring the millennium to its climax, followed by the resurrection and judgment of the wicked on the great right throne. Then there's an amillennial, which means that it's been happening already. Guess what? Good news if you're an amillennialist, you're already in it. <laughs> Except that it's a figurative period of time. It is not a literal 1,000 period of time because it has been, if you haven't heard, almost 2,000 years since Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So we're well over 1,000 years. Amillennials then interpret these 2,019 years to be figurative, a figurative millennial or age, golden age, if you will. Uh, not golden age, I mean church age. The post-millennials are the golden age, which means it might be happening now. So hope, I hope that helps. Sometimes just whiteboarding it, putting it out there, and making, making it clear that way helps. So let's talk about the four events of Revelation chapter 20, shall we? First, we come to the binding of Satan. 
the binding of Satan happens in the first three verses of Revelation. Now, let's take a look at it. Here's what it says. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon. Notice the word dragon here. That ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. And I just want to stop here for a moment because I want you to see that there's four names that are referred to here for the devil and Satan. He's the dragon, he's the serpent, he's the devil, and he's Satan. And all four of those names have a role. They refer to a role of Satan. He is the dragon, which means that he, he is the one who tried to, in Revelation chapter 12, eat the baby that was born of the woman, referring to Christ. He's the dragon. He's the one who has tried to destroy Jesus, and he didn't. He's the ancient serpent. He's the one who deceives us. And he's the devil, which means accuser. He's the one who accuses us. And then he's Satan, our adversary. He opposes us, okay? So anyway, all that to say this, it bounds him, the angel with the chain binds him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Okay, the biggest and most important question is this. What is meant by Satan being bound? What does that mean? Because if that means literal, you're a premillennial person, you or a postmillennial person, because you believe that Jesus Christ comes back and then an angel comes from heaven and literally binds Satan with a literal chain and puts him in a literal pit and seals it over him with a little literal seal. Okay, uh, that's the premillennial view. Now, here's what you might be interested to know. The premillennial view is actually the newest view of the three. Historically speaking, Christians in the 4th century, Christians in the 1500s, in the Reformation period, and Catholics by and large, do not believe in the premillennial view of the return of Christ. They don't. This is a very relatively new, actually started in the 1800s, I think, by a guy named John Nelson Darby, who also started dispensationalism, which talks about different dispensations of history and uh, we're in the dispensation of the church age, and then we're going to get to the dispensation of the millennium, or tribulation, and then the dispensation of the millennium, which precedes the dispensation of the new heavens and the new earth. Typically, what's interesting about the premillennial view of the millennium is this. Typically, premillennialists are aligned with young earth creationists. What are young earth creationists? Young earth creationists believe that the earth is basically 6,000 years old. Now, this is why it gets interesting. If we take the six days of creation to be 24-hour periods, six 24-hour periods literally in which God created the heavens and the earth, which, by the way, he could do. Um, if we take that literally, then the earth is, if you, if you date it back through the genealogical records of the Bible, the earth is about five to 6,000 years old, which means that we are on the cusp of, guess what, our seventh 1,000-year period which could very well be the millennium, which could make the millennium a, so, a figurative seventh day of creation in light of the idea that in other passages of the Bible, most notably Psalm 90, it talks about a thousand years being as a day and a day as a thousand years. So take just think, this is, this is what I call the highly literal reading view of the Bible. If a thousand years is literally a day to God, then when it says that God created the heavens and the earth in six literal days, it means six 1,000-year you know, 1, periods to God, but to us it's one day, and then the 1,000 years that we've lived is actually six days to God, and then the millennium is like the seventh day, and remember on the seventh day is the Sabbath where we rest with God in eternity. 
I hope that makes sense to you. It's really cool. I mean, it really like, you know, spices up the fact that, hey, it's the year 2000 and actually it's 2019. But, you know, there's a lot of premillennial uh, hype around the turn of the millennium in the early 2000s and late 1990s. I remember I was there. And it's kind of a cool numerological view. I'm not sold on it. I just want to let you know. I'm not sold on it. Here's why I'm not sold. Because most of the days and time periods in Revelation and the numbers in Revelation, if we remember now, and if you've been with this this whole season, they're symbolic. They're hugely symbolic. In fact, in the Bible, all over the place, numbers are symbolic. And they're symbolic for something else. They usually point to something else. And so... It, 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 to me, it's like, I just think it's just way too, of a, too literal of a reading of Revelation chapter 20. You're welcome to it if you want to believe it. I'm not disparaging it. I just, I think it's almost too literal. And, and in light of how we read the rest of Revelation, when it talks about uh, Satan being a dragon, he's not literally a dragon. When um, it talks about stars in the head and diadems on the, on the head and all that kind of stuff, and the monsters, the dragon with seven heads and ten horns and all that kind of stuff, those are not literal horns. Even Jesus is referred to as the lamb. He's not a literal lamb, nor is he a literal lion. These are symbols, okay? Symbols matter. When Jerusalem is referred to Sodom and Egypt, it's not literally Sodom and Egypt being... being uh, Combined with Jerusalem, no, it's lit. These are, these are figurative references so that we understand how to read the day in which we live through symbols and pictures that the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures provide. Okay, anyway, that's the premillennial view. A millennial view believes this. Now, this is very interesting. A millennial believes that the dragon is, again, that ancient dragon from Revelation chapter 12, who, you, if you remember from that episode in this season, Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 says, A great sign appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head was a crown of 12 stars. Again, that was a picture, if you remember, of Israel and the church combined. Mary, who gives birth to Jesus. Okay, it says she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, a great red dragon, seven heads, ten horns, on his head seven diadems. His tail swept a third of the stars out of heaven, cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when he bore a child, he might devour it. Now, that's a picture, right? But what they're saying here now is that the church age is the millennium from the resurrect from the birth of Christ right through to the return of Christ. Now this is important because what it's saying is that the dragon who tried to devour the child uh, and by the way, before he was born and after he was born, remember Herod tries to kill the children under two years old in Bethlehem uh, and he fails because the angel comes and helps Joseph and Mary escape to Egypt and then come back. But the dragon fails to devour the child. Now the dragon is bound by the work of the child because what Jesus talked about in the Gospels refers to the fact that his work at the cross would disable and disarm the power of Satan. Read Revelation chapter 20 in the light of what Jesus himself said about the work of the cross. I quote Jesus himself, Mark chapter 3, verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Sounds like Revelation chapter 20. Then indeed he may plunder his house. What does plundering his house mean? It means plundering the house of Satan. It refers to saving people out of Satan's house and bringing them into the house of faith. Jesus talking about this in Mark chapter 3. Revelation chapter 20 saying, guess what? It's happening now. Every time somebody gets saved, they're leaving the house of Satan and they're entering into the house of the Father. Hallelujah. Jesus also talked about this in John chapter 12, 
Right before he goes to the cross, he says this in chapter 12, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. He's talking about the cross. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out or cast down. That sounds like Revelation chapter 12 and chapter 20 language again, meaning that the original work of Jesus as his first coming is what inaugurates a church age, quote unquote, that lasts for a symbolic period of time, 1,000 years in this case, or a long period of time, in which Jesus successfully sends out his emissaries or ambassadors to preach the gospel, to save lost sinners, and bring them out of the house of Satan into the house of God. Now, you say, that's a great view, Pastor, but again, it says a thousand years, and I'm really struggling with a thousand years. I think it means a literal thousand years. Okay, well, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture always interprets Scripture. So if we consider this passage in light of the symbolic numerology throughout the book of Revelation and the rest of the Bible, there is no reason to not take 1,000 years to be figurative. Uh, for instance, let me just share with you a couple of passages. Psalm 90, verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. 2 Peter 3, 8 says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Even the number thousand is used figuratively in other passages, such as Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Quote, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, okay? I don't even think there's been a thousand generations of Jews, and he was talking to Jews in that time. And then Psalm 50, verse 10, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Now, there are much more than a thousand hills on planet Earth, but God is talking in figurative terms to help us. It's all mine. It's all mine, basically is what he's saying there. Now, even science backs up the idea that this is a figurative term. For instance, Albert Einstein in 1905 developed a theory, we call it the theory of relativity. He was riding a train home from work and he looked at a clock as the train uh, rode past and he realized that if I was traveling away from that clock at the speed of light, the clock would stay at the same time in perpetuity. This is a theory. Nobody can really travel at the speed of light. But the speed of, the speed of light is the, the, the time it takes for the light refraction to hit the clock face and bounce back to my eye. If I was traveling at that speed, then I would never see the clock move if I was traveling away from the clock at that speed. Uh, we could actually simplify this by saying if you're traveling at 90 miles an hour on the highway, if somebody's standing still, you look like you're going 90 miles an hour. But if somebody's traveling 60 miles an hour, guess what you look like you're doing? You look like you're doing 30 miles an hour, okay? It's called relativity. And so Albert Einstein develops his theory. It literally shakes up the whole scientific world, and it's pretty much adopted now. He gets to this point, E equals MC squared, which if I was a smarter person, I could really understand and unpack everything for you for that. But I'm, there's other people who can unpack it for you, and you can just do your own research on it. But what I'm trying to tell you is that even science itself says time is relative. Time is relative to, or according to, distance, um, planetary gravitational pulls, and I don't know if you've seen that movie, great movie by Christopher Nolan. Love Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan fans here? Young people. You guys got to be Christopher Nolan fans, right? All right. The Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises, come, Dunkirk. Yes? Okay. Well, he wrote a great movie, did a great movie called Interstellar. Seen Interstellar? Interstellar, where Matthew McConaughey is this, you know, astronaut, and he goes to another planet, but he lands on one planet where one hour of time on that planet is seven years, out, seven years of time in planet Earth. This is all based on Einstein's theory of relativity. This is a scientific theory. Now, it's not fact. It's theory because we can't test it. We can't test it. We can just hypothesize it. Nobody has been able to travel at the speed of light yet. Maybe someday we will. 
But the point is, is that even science itself says time is relative to one's point of reference. And so when it comes to the millennium or the thousand-year period here, what it's saying is, according to our reference, it's going to be a pretty stinking long time. And I thought about this. Now, let me just, let me just hang here for a moment. John is writing. He's being given these visions, and he's being given a thousand-year period for a particular reason. Here's the reason. Because he was anticipating Jesus to come back in his lifetime. I mean, he, Jesus ascends before the disciples, and then the angel appears and says, don't stare at heaven. This same Jesus who was raised is going to come back the same way he came. So the disciples left that mountaintop with Jesus having ascended, and the angel saying that, saying, well, he's, surely he's going to come back in a couple of weeks. And then a couple of weeks went by, and he wasn't back. A couple of years, maybe. And a couple of years go by, he's not back. John is 80 years old. He's still not back. He's on the Isle of Patmos. He's exiled. He has no friends. He has nobody to talk to. Heavenly angel, angelic visions are given to him. And I think it really comes down to this. The angel was showing, God chose to show John this, this to, 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 to show John the church age is a thousand years, simply to say, hey, John, it's going to be a long time before Jesus comes back again. So prepare like it. See, that's, to me, that's just the practical, spiritual, pastoral application of a thousand years. John, in his context, was anticipating Jesus to come back at any moment, and Jesus was saying, sending a message to John saying, I need you to tell the church that it's going to be a long time. It's going to be a long And a thousand years is a good round number. Let's just call it a thousand years. Let's just figure it out. It's a long time. And here's the lesson for the church. Here's the lesson for you, Christian. You need to live as if Jesus Christ is going to come back today, but you need to plan as if he's coming back in your children's children's generation. And I think that's good living. I think it's a good idea for you to live every day as if Jesus could come back today. In other words, live righteous, live holy, pursue biblical things, pursue Christian things, pursue godly things. But don't go spending all your money and not preparing for the future and providing a good inheritance for your children or, you know, a good lifestyle for your family and those who come after you and, and caring for the poor and helping and healing the sick and making the world better. Both and. Like, we should do both and. Jesus could come back right now and he could come back in my great-grandchildren's generation. Let me live like that. That's faithfully living. And I think that the millennial period here, the thousand years period here, is basically God saying to John, relax and prepare for the future. Let's talk about the post-millennial view. Now, remember, the post-millennial view is called the golden age view. I call it the golden age view, which means that Christianity is going to take over the world eventually through gospel preaching, and it's going to be so, the world's going to be so Christian uh, that for 1,000 years, it's going to be governed by Christian principles. Now, I love that view. I'd love that view to be true, but there's a problem. And here, here's a, a notable historian in Christian history uh, who adopted the post-millennial view. His name was Jonathan Edwards right here in New England. He was a pastor in Northampton, Massachusetts, and uh, then he was, I think, prince, uh, president of Princeton University, before it was Princeton University. And then he died shortly after there, uh, thereafter. He adopted this view, and I can see why he would adopt this view, because he was a product of the First Great Awakening, where people were coming to Christ in droves during the First Great Awakening in the 1700s in this country. So he could possibly see, look at this great revival. I mean, people were, uh, saloons and bars were emptying out, and they were going to church and getting saved, and he probably thought, wow. We're inaugurating the millennium. Well, it didn't actually take, and it didn't stick for very long, okay? So we're now at the age we are in now. And what you see now today is that many parts of the world that were predominantly Christian for many, many centuries, i.e. Europe and America, are now presently in decline from the Christian faith. 
So this study came out from the General Social Survey just recently. Eastern Illinois University has just produced uh, a new survey result that says the number of self-identified nuns, and that's N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N, the self-identified nuns, which means they have no religious affiliation whatsoever, has risen from 22.2% of America in 2008 to an astonishing, are you ready, drum roll, 29.5% in 2018. In 10 years, it has grown by 7.3% of the national population. The big finding in 2018 is that those of no religion are now as common as evangelicals, Bible-believing Christians in the U.S., about 23% of the population. Now, that sounds bad. And it's kind of bad news for the post-millennial viewer. Maybe. Maybe. Let's go somewhere, shall we? Let me show you a chart. Can we put this full screen? This is a chart from the survey that I just referenced of America's religious landscape from 1972 to 2018. Okay, so we're talking about, what is that? That's a 46-year period, right? 46-year period. Now, the uh, evangelicals there, if you look at it in 1972, are at about 20, uh, what is that, about 20-some-odd percent. No, no, less than 20. They're about 17%. Then look at them in 2018. They're at 24%. But the striking one here, if you can see full screen, and I'll just mark it up so that you under, so that you can see it here, uh, you'll see that, that this high trajectory of no religion people sh- has, just begins to shoot up at about 2004, 2004, and then has steadily risen ever since. Bad news for Christianity, right? There it goes. It's gone. If there's one thing secularists love to talk about is the demise of Christianity. It's over, people. Jump out. The water is too cold, right? Well, hold on. Hold on. My question for you is, where do these spiritual nuns come from? Because they're not getting born. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. All the statistics back up the fact that Christians and Catholics, particularly, uh, bear far more children than non-Christians and non-believers. Way more children. So just the birth rate alone is going to outnumber the spiritual nuns. So the question comes, where are they coming from? Well, let's look at the screen again. Full screen again for me, guys. Check out this, this blue line right here. It starts, it goes up high a little bit, then it just kind of totters down here in the 1980s and goes up a little bit at the beginning of the 1990s. Then it just starts to take a nosedive. What is that? Look closely. It's the mainline denomination. It's the mainline. What are the mainline denominations? That's a, that's a cute term for the big white church on Main Street in USA. And the big white church on Main Street in USA, congregational, um, uh, Episcopal, uh, Methodist, uh, maybe, you know, Bap- American Baptist, Northern Baptist, all the other Baptists, whatever. They are the ones who are producing the spiritual nuns. Are you following me? My point is that Mainline Christianity, which, by the way, if you do any research, any historical study of these people, they gave up on biblical Christianity in the 1920s. They gave up on it big time and basically turned the supernatural, uh, turned away from the supernatural elements of the faith, Christ's atonement, Christ's resurrection, Christ's miracles and wonders and signs, basically rejected that and said, no, Christianity is really just about being nice and being good. Well, when you remove the miracles of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection away from Christianity, you lose the power of the gospel. And guess what you do not do? You do not produce converts. 
and mainliners did not produce converts for over a century now. And guess what? Their children and grandchildren just basically said, you know what? Nobody ever really, this never really meant anything to me. And it doesn't seem to mean anything to anybody else in my life. So guess what? I'm just going to get out. And what I really think is, is that those people who feigned faith for many years are just finally being honest with themselves. That's what's happening. And I think it's the mainliners who are jumping ship. And they're just, they're not, they weren't Christians anyway. They weren't Christians anyway. They're just finally saying, you know what, I don't really believe this stuff, so I'm going to stop the pretense. That's what I think happened. So there's this article in Christianity Today. I love this. Good news. Plenty of the nuns actually head back to church. I love this. So they did a study from 2010 to 2014, and they found out that nearly one in five Americans changed their faith identity over a four-year period. Check that out. 20% of Americans, okay, changed their faith identity between 2010 and 2014. In fact, the article says that Americans shift their religious identifications more often than any others in the Western world more often than any others in the Western world. And let me just show you who's leaving what. Okay, so this next chart is interesting. You gotta, I, I wish you were, I hope you're on YouTube. I hope you're seeing this in video. But if you're not, I'll just explain it to you. There's this chart and there's these one, two, three, four, five, six bars. And um, the highest number of defection from their stated faith is agnostics. So who's giving up between 2010 and 2014 their faith system more often than anybody? agnostics at almost 50%, which means in a four-year period, 50% of agnostics said, I'm no longer agnostic anymore. Well, what did they do? Well, many of them jumped into the nothing category, the spiritual nun category. But look at the spiritual nun category, second place in losing adherence. <laughs> so what happens is you, you jump out of the agnostic category, you jump into the nun category, guess what? Then about you get another 40% chance of jumping out of the nun category into another category. And uh, then atheists are third with about 17 to 18% of them jump out of the atheist category in a four-year period. My point is that all three, agnostic, nuns, and atheists, have a propensity of leaving their faith identity. And this is good news. This is good news. Look at, by the way, who has the least propensity to leave their faith identity, Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish. Now, Jewish lowest is because it's oftentimes just referred to as a ethnicity and not necessarily an orthodox faith. Catholic, because it turns, I know I'm in Catholic country up here in Massachusetts, and it turns, it's very much a cultural uh, statement and not necessarily an orthodox faith. Pr uh, faith. Protestantism, yeah, we're losing, but we're not losing nearly as many as people as the atheists or nothings or agnostics are. And here's the thing. The trajectory is that you jump out of the agnostic category into the nothing category. Now, a large number of them who are leaving the nuns category, jump into the atheist category. That's a fact. I'm not going to sugarcoat it here. But guess what? This is incredible. 13% of those nuns jump into the Protestant faith category in a four-year period. 13 stinking percent of the defectors jump into the Protestant category. Guess what else? 5% of them jump into the Catholic category. Why am I sharing this? Because it's not as bleak as the secularists would love to claim. It turns out that if you don't have a Christian faith, or at least a Jewish faith or Christian faith, you get pretty antsy about your faith system. You can't make up your mind. You have a much better chance of leaving your faith system if you are not rooted in the Christian or Judeo-Christian ethic. And that is good for good news for the church. It's also good news for post-millennialists because maybe they're right. <laughs> maybe we will take over the world. Yay! 
yay, post-millennialism. <laughs> I don't know, but let's just take a look one more time at this, at this chart. Let's put it full screen one more time. Just check this out. The best news about this chart is evangelical Christianity, which, by the way, I know is associated with being a Trump supporter. It's not. Trust me. Way before Trump, there were evangelicals in this country. I'm an evangelical. Evangelical means I believe the Bible is true. I believe it's the word of God. I believe Jesus is the only way. And I believe I should share my faith with people. That's the, that's the foundation of evangelical Christianity. 17% in 1972. Check it out now. 2018. We're at 24% of the population. I know we got the ups and downs here. Disregard that. It's like a stock. You don't, you don't ride the ups and downs. You ignore that. You look at the long-term trajectory. Guess what that is? From, from uh, 17% to 24%, that is how, that's an astounding rise. That's a 7%. 7% increase in 46 years of American history of Bible-believing Christians. Do you realize how awesome that is? Do you realize how awesome that is? For point of reference, historically speaking, this is cool. The Roman Empire, which was pagan, became Christian, made Christianity the state religion. Guess what percentage of the population was actually Christian at that time? 10%. 10% of the population had such an impact on the Roman government that the Roman government made Christianity the official state religion. It only took 10% of the population being Christian. We are at 25, 24%. Do you understand? This is so good. This is such good news. Remember Jesus said we're the salt of the earth? Do you know why he said salt? Well, I don't know if you do any cooking or baking, but no baking recipe ever calls for that much salt. But without the salt, the, the recipe fails. And the point that Jesus is making is a little salt does a lot of good. And so I am actually, I'm actually pretty positive. I know, and here's what you're going to hear. If you wake up to CBS this morning, tomorrow, they're going to have this research about, you know, this new survey, Christianity decline, Christianity decline. Newsweek once put on the front page of their, of their paper, God is dead, Christianity is dying. And about 18 months later, they claim bankruptcy. So how's that working out for you? Watch out when you root for the failure of the Christian movement. Watch out. If anything, Revelation teaches us, Jesus wins. Okay, we got to move on. The reign of the saints. Amillennial, postmillennial, premillennial view. Verses 4 to 6. Let's read it. Then I saw thrones and seated on, the, seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay. The big debate about this passage with the three views is the term, what does it mean when it says in verse 4 that they, they came to life and reigned with Christ? And what does it mean by first resurrection? Are there multiple resurrections? Now, this is why this is debatable, because Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats, kind of backs up the fact that there's one resurrection, and that lends credence to the amillennial and postmillennial view. In other words, there's no physical resurrection until Jesus comes back again at the end of the church age or the golden age of the church. 
the premillennial view is the only one that adopts two resurrections. The resurrection of the righteous when Jesus comes to reign on the earth for a thousand years, and then the resurrection of the unrighteous at the end of that thousand years when the books are open and the great white throne judgment happens. So I know this is confusing, but let me just kind of boil it down for you. There's debate here, and it's a reasonable debate. And there are passages that support and kind of contradict all three views in some ways. So in Matthew 25, Jesus does talk about this one resurrection where the, the sheep and the goats are gathered before him. That sounds like one resurrection, right? And the sheep are brought into the house and the goats are cast out. But then in John chapter 5, verse 28, John says this, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all those who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, right here in John chapter 5, 28, you can make a case for, first he says, an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice. So that sounds like one resurrection. But then the very next verse he says, those who have got done good to the resurrection of, the li of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Is he talking about two resurrections? And then Revelation chapter 20 says there's a first resurrection and then, the, and then verse 5 says the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Second resurrection. The premillennialists have, pre have a point here. But likewise, the post and, and uh, amillennialists have a, a point as well. But it all hinges on the meaning of coming to life, verse 4. They came to life and reigned with Christ. Well, in the Bible, spiritually speaking, we already have come to life. Colossians chapter 1.18 says, He is the head of the body of the church, which is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 says, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. He's talking to people on earth and he's saying, this is your spiritual reality. You were raised with Christ and you were seated with him in heavenly places. Colossians 3.1 says, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the, things that are things, think, seek the things that are above. So if you have been raised, past tense. So spiritually speaking, we have been raised with Christ. The, the question has to come down, the question on the millennial view here is, do you take they came to life to be a physical resurrection or a spiritual resurrection? Well, it can be no, there can be no doubt that it's definitely a spiritual resurrection for those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and those who did not worship the beast or receive his mark because they're in heaven with Jesus immediately. When Stephen gets stoned, he goes straight to heaven. Jesus is standing at the right-hand side of God the Father. What is he standing for? He's standing ready to welcome Stephen, the first martyr of the church, into the throne of heaven. So there's debate here, and I'm, what I'm just trying to say is that it's, 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 it's reasonable debate. Now, the post-millennials say that, again, this is the golden age of the church and that we have to inaugurate this. We have to inaugurate um, the uh, millennial reign of Christ through our testimony. That's why it is those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. And by the way, even in the book of Acts, James gets beheaded. Um, John the Baptist gets beheaded, not in the book of Acts, in the Gospels. Uh, Paul, according to church tradition, he gets beheaded. So there's you know, relevance here to the actual experience of Christians in, his, in history. And many Christians who fought to get the word into the common man's hands, the word of God, the Bible printed and handed to the masses, they lost their heads. Uh, Bloody Mary persecuted Christians, Protestant Christians, who wanted to get the Bible and the scriptures into people's hands. Okay, So there's tons of evidence that this is referring to the work of the church inaugurating the millennial golden age, if you will, of the church. Just a question of when did that happen, or has it happened, or will it happen? I don't know. I don't think it is happening, honestly, right now, based on this, based on the, 
the way the world is today. You, there's no way you could say that the, the vast majority of people on this earth are Christian. In fact, we are only, I think, 1.9 or 2.1% of the global po- I'm sorry, about 30% of the global population, 2.1 billion people. Anyway, what the post-millennialists say is we have got to do work to make it happen. Now, I don't disagree that we have got to do work. I'm just not sure that our work leads to global conversion. I just I don't see that in other passages of Scripture, and I don't think this one, this passage here in Revelation 20, says that either. Okay, let's move on. The defeat of Satan and then Gog and Magog, verses 7 to 10. Here's what it says. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand on the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, so premillennial view means Jesus comes back, establishes a thousand-year reign, and at the end of that reign, Satan is literally released, which means during that thousand-year reign, by the way, Satan basically does nothing. And, uh, and, and so the world is Christianized. The universe is Christianized. We reign with Christ. But Satan is released. Well, why is he released? Here's what premillennials say. He is released to test the hearts of those who are converted to Christ in the millennium. And if they follow Satan, then they were never really converts. So they just joined up with who they really were. That's their point. Uh, The amillennial view says this is a time that comes at the end of the church age, which kind of backs up how the rest of Revelation works. This is a time at the end of the church age where the nations are overwhelmingly deceived by Satan. So the question comes to the the question comes here. Well, what does it mean that Satan is bound then during the church age? Again, remember, Jesus bound Satan at the cross. Jesus, according to Colossians, made a public spectacle of the powers of Satan at the cross. They are bound. He is the strong man who is bound. Okay, so now the gospel has been advancing, but there's going to come a time when all the nations who hate God are going to rear their ugly head in unity and attack God's people, i.e the beloved city, the saints, all pictures of the church. They're going to turn. All nations are going to turn on the church together and attack right before the second coming of Jesus. Uh, Then a question becomes, who is Gog and Magog? Well, Gog and Magog, these again are figurative terms. They appear in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, but they also appear in the Table of Nations in Genesis chapter 10 and in the chronological uh, listing, the genealogical listings of 1 Chronicles chapter 5. Gog is a person, Magog is a place. And so a lot of commentators say, well, this basically just means prince and people. And Magog is um, a land of many nations. And it lists many nations in Genesis chapter 10 uh, that are in Magog. And Gog is like their head. Gog is this guy who runs Magog. (laughs) Weird names in the Bible, but nonetheless. What it means is this is a picture they appear in Revelation chapter 20 because what it's saying is at the end of the age, there's going to be a global leader who will unite all nations and will turn on the church of Jesus and make war against the saints. And we've talked about this ad nauseum on this season of the deep end is that it looks like that could very well happen. It looks like that could very well happen as, as religious intolerance and Christian intolerance is rising steadily in the West. 
uh, religious intolerance and Christian intolerance in particular is astronomical in places like India and China and uh, Africa and North Korea and even in Russia in some cases. So what this is saying is at the end of the age, there's going to be a prince who will lead all people against God's people. That's the amillennial view. And then the post-millennial view is very similar to the amillennial view, but it happens after the golden age of the church. In other words, there's this great thousand-year period where the church really rocks it and basically takes over the world, but then Satan is released. And again, why is he released? To test the hearts of those who are converted under a predominantly Christian world to see if their hearts are really converted or they just in lockstep like early 20th century mainliners because it's just culturally acceptable to be Christian. Well, when Satan is released to deceive you, will you be deceived? And this actually brings me to another great point, is that you can't be deceived if you're truly in Christ. You can't be deceived if you're truly in Christ. Where do I get that from? John chapter 10, when Jesus says, My sheep know my voice. They will never follow a stranger's voice. They will never follow a stranger's voice. That's the beautiful promise of Scripture. That yes, Satan will try to deceive, but he will not deceive the elect. Even in Matthew 24, it says that, It'll get so bad, it'll seem as if the elect could even be saved, if that were possible, i.e., it's not possible for those who are in Christ to be deceived away from Christ. Good news, Christian, you are safe in the truth that is in Jesus Christ if your heart is converted. Doesn't mean you don't do anything. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It doesn't mean you just sit idly by until Jesus comes back. No, you give yourself to the principles of Scripture, the principles of the church, the, the gathering together of the church, the work of the church, the mission of the gospel. But the good news is this, that God has you in the palm of his hand and no man can pluck you out, even the one world leader and all the nations conspiring against you. Okay, finally, the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, here's what it says. Then I saw a great white throne, that's why we call this the great white throne judgment, and him who seated on it, From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay. Real quick, the views. Premillennials. Here's classical premillennialism. I grew up believing this, and so this might be familiar to you as well. Again, a very m- new view of Revelation chapter 20. There's two judgments. There is, the, uh, there is the great white throne judgment after the millennium, but there is the judgment seat of Christ before the millennium, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That's what Paul talks about. So Christians are judged at the judgment seat of Christ, and then there is a judgment for non-Christians. But there's a problem again here because it says the books were opened, the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done, but it's also mentioning another book that was open, which is the book of life. So both books, which are pictures for judgment seats, are opened at the same time, book singular being the Lamb's book of life, which Jesus told the disciples, rejoice that your name's written there, rejoice that your name's written there rather than in rather than the fact that you have powers of the enemy. And then the books, plural, opened the records of people's good, bad, and ugly deeds. And non-believers are being judged. And here's the thing. And all the views agree about this, by the way. All the, all the views, pre, a, and post-millennial views, agree that if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you do not face the judgment for your sins. 
That's the good news of the gospel. God will not judge you for your sins if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Will he punish you for your sins? Absolutely. He disciplines those he loves, Hebrews chapter 12. But he won't eternally judge you for your sins. That's an important caveat. You will not be eternally judged for your sins. That's what unbelievers get judged for. And by the way, there's a judgment for unbelievers. In other words, there's categories of the afterlife for unbelievers, categories for punishment in the afterlife for unbelievers. Not every unbeliever gets the same treatment. So no, Hitler will not get the same treatment as just the regular guy in America who just goes about his business and just rejects Jesus. Okay, there's different levels. The books are open, and good news is this, that God Almighty is in charge of the books, and he knows exactly how to judge each person according to what they have done. And that's not our job, that's his job. Anyway, uh, the one departure from the premillennial view to the A and postmillennial views is that the A and postmillennial views say there's just one judgment seat. There's just one judgment seat. And Christians and non-Christians appear there at the end of the church age or golden age of the church. And again, if their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, they are saved and they are brought into the heavenly city. And if they are not, they are judged according to their deeds, according to the books, and i.e. the books are the record of your life. Yes, God has a record of your life. If you are not in Christ, this is very bad news for you. This is terrible news for you. If you're not in Christ, every wicked deed will receive appropriate eternal punishment. That is why we preach the gospel to you, so that you can receive the grace of God in Christ Jesus and be saved by grace through faith in him and not have to face judgment for your sins. Look, we all know that people need to be judged. We all know. It's just we just don't want ourselves to be judged. (laughs) That's the thing. The thing about judgment is everybody else needs it except me. That's the human condition again. The human condition that says, well, this guy who refuses to have the lady meet with him in private, he, he deserves to be judged. Whoa, wait a second. Don't you deserve to be judged for repudiating the fact that he wants to make a promise to his wife and stick by it? See, my point is that everybody wants everybody else to be judged except themselves, and the, and the sad news for unbelievers is you will be judged. You. Yes, you. But if you're in Christ, that judgment was taken 2,000 years ago on the cross. That judgment was already taken for you. That's the good news of the gospel. God, Jesus Christ, bore your punishment on the cross so that you could walk away free and clear and be raised to newness of life and live for him forever. Anyway, lake of fire, it all happens. We get to that again later on. Uh, We'll get to chapter 21 next week, but that concludes chapter 20. And we could talk for hours on chapter 20, but I just don't have the time. and, And frankly, I don't know if I have the energy. That's the millennium. Now, my last and final note, what to make of the quote-unquote controversial Revelation chapter 20? Here's what I make of it. What controversy? (laughs) What controversy? Because here's the deal. Here's what we learned from Revelation chapter 20. Number one, Satan's power is limited. Full stop. Satan's power is limited. If God wants him bound, he's bound. If God wants to release, he releases. My point is that God is in charge. Jesus is in charge. So don't go running away like Satan can get you. God has you if you're a Christian. God can strengthen you and protect you and keep you safe from Satan's power. Hallelujah. And you have authority, which brings me to number two. The church stands triumphant. There is no controversy about Revelation chapter 20 because guess what? In all three views, the church wins. Woohoo! <laughs> Are you on the winning team? Look, people love winners. This is why people call it jumping on or off the bandwagon when a sports team does well or bad. 
Well, you want to be on the church's bandwagon, my friend, because the church wins. The church wins. The church stands triumphant at the end. God vindicates his chosen ones. And we have to have a long-term picture. That's what a thousand years. It's a long-term picture of our Christian faith. And I find that there's too many Christians, they want immediate victory every single day. I want immediate victory right now. Well, it doesn't work like that all the time. Sometimes you got to go through some crap. Sometimes you got to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes you got to go through times of dryness and mourning and sadness and sorrow and pain. But the truth of Scripture is God will vindicate and God will resurrect and God will bring you out. Why? Because you are his. Third, judgment is coming. And we've already talked about this. Don't be judged for your sins in eternity. Let Jesus be the one who bears your sins on the cross, and you can walk away in newness of life. That's the millennium. There really is no controversy. Revelation calls the church resolutely toward hope, and you should be hopeful that Christ is coming again and will make all things new, including you. That's the Deep End Podcast, covering the most controversial book, chapter in the entire Bible. How about that? We did it in about an hour and 15 minutes, hour and 10 minutes, whatever. Hope you liked it. See you next week on The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End Podcast. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and in your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End Podcast.